Well, hey, Merry Christmas, Harvest. How are we doing? Good. Hey, before we do anything else, can we just thank Carolyn and Taylor and, and Katie for leading us so well in worship? Um, we're spoiled, aren't we? So, so thankful for them and, and that team. Do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, can you open it up to John 1? We're going to hang out in John 1. We're going to dive a little bit deeper into the passage that Eric shared with us this morning in the devotional. As always, we have people coming down the aisles right now who will get a Bible to you if you need one. Just raise your hand. We'll get that to you. We're going to be again in John 1. And if you don't own a Bible, please keep that as our gift to you. We'd love for you to take that home as an early Christmas gift. And um, we really love Christmas here at Harvest. And I just want to speak honestly for a moment. Here's our goal every Christmas season. We want these services and these moments to be sacred in the midst of a really, really busy season. I don't know about you, but when I look at my calendar, like I'm already getting a little bit anxious with how much is on there. I've got children, I've got, you know, school musicals and plays, and I've got family Christmas parties and work Christmas parties, and and things get really, really busy. And what we want to is when we come to this place, we can stop, we can worship, And we can set our hearts on the reality that Jesus coming to earth changed everything, not just for the world, but for you and me individually. We want this to be a place where our hearts can meet with Jesus. And so what we're going to do is each week we're going to focus on one of the words of Christmas or one of the gifts that we have been given as a result of Jesus being born. And this week we're going to talk about the word hope. And so if you have your notes, take them out right now. Here's our big idea. It's this. This is going to set the tone for where we're going. It's that our hope is anything but blind. The hope that we have in Jesus Christ is not a blind hope. It is a certain hope. It is anything but blind. Do you know what I'm talking about when I say blind hope? Like most of the things we hope for in this world, we have no certainty on whether or not it's going to happen. We want it to happen. We desire it to happen, but we're not sure if it's going to happen or not. Like there's some hope I have around Christmas that's blind. I hope that the weather cooperates this Christmas Eve, unlike last year's Christmas Eve. Do you guys remember last year's Christmas Eve? There was a big winter and ice storm and uh, we'd worked so hard to have some great Christmas Eve services. I was looking so forward to celebrating that night with our church family. And I woke up at like 7.30 in the morning and it was dark and it was snowy and it was icy and it just got worse and worse and worse as the day went along. And finally at like 1 p.m., our campus pastors called and like, Cal, we've been driving the roads. It's not safe. We should cancel these services. And I was so bummed. And by like four o'clock in the afternoon, my wife pulled me aside and she's like, Cal, I get that you're bummed that the services were canceled, but it's Christmas Eve and I don't need a Grinch in my house this Christmas. For the sake of the kids, pull it together. Like snap out of it. And I'm like, okay, I'll snap out of it. Right? Like I was so bummed that, that we missed out. And listen, I hope that doesn't happen this year. I hope the weather's great. I'm so looking forward to celebrating Christmas Eve, but I don't know. I'm not in control of the weather. It's a hope that is blind. Um, I hope that I'm healthy and my family's healthy this holiday season. Uh, Last year for Mary's side of the family, the Moeller Christmas family get together, Bo and I were in bed with 101 degree COVID viruses, right? We missed out on it. I hope that doesn't happen this year. That was a less than awesome way to celebrate Christmas. I don't know, right? There's things in our world that I am hoping for in 2024. Like how amazing would it be if 2024 was the year that the war in Ukraine ended? Wouldn't that be amazing? Like, I'm hoping for peace there. Am I confident that's going to happen? No, I don't know. It's blind hope. I'm hoping that there is a peaceful resolution in Israel and in Gaza and that peace can be brokered in that situation. There's things in my life 
that I live with with blind hope. I hope that I have long-lasting, enduring, good relationships with my kids as they get older and become adults. Like, I want that so badly, but here's what I know. There are people in our church who love the Lord, were incredible parents, loved their kids well, and their relationship with their adult kids is broken. I am not in control of my kids' hearts. I can't make that happen. I want it to happen. I don't know. Right? There's people in this room where it's like, man, I hope I have long, enduring, lifelong friendships with you, but I don't know what the future holds. There's a lot of things that we hope for in the future, but we're not sure about. And I, Give me your eyes. This is not the hope we're talking about today. This is not biblical hope. Hebrews 11 says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. That biblical hope is a sure hope that Christian faith is marked by certainty, both in what has happened in the past and what will happen in the future. All right, so show of hands quick. Um, Raise your hand if you have heard of the philosophical argument called Pascal's Wager. Raise your hand if you've heard of that before. Raise your hand if like, Cal, I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, most rooms people haven't heard of this. So Blaise Pascal was a French philosopher and he had an argument for why we should believe in God. And it went something like this. He says, you should believe in God and live a life of service to God because if you die and God doesn't exist, there's no real consequence to that. You're just dead like everyone else. You're in the inescapable void. Your life's just over. But if you live a life that serves God and he does happen to exist, you're going to be rewarded in heaven. And that sounds way better than being punished in hell. So he's like, we don't know if God exists or not, but you should serve him and love him just on the off chance he is exist because that's what's best for you. It's hedging your bets. And do me a favor, turn to your neighbor and say, that's nonsense. That's blind hope. That's like, I don't know what's going to happen, but in case he's real, I, I, I might as well do it. Listen, that is not biblical hope. That is not what we are talking about today. And that brings us to John 1. If you have your Bibles, look at John 1, verse 1. A little bit of background to this book. Um, John, it's the last of the four Gospels written, right? You remember there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the four accounts of the life of Jesus. John is the last one to write his account, and John was Jesus's best friend. He was in the inner circle. He was closest to Jesus. In fact, there was a healthy brotherly rivalry between John and Peter about who was closest with Jesus. And John wins and it drives Peter crazy. John only refers to himself in his book as the one whom Jesus loved. That's how close of a relationship that he had. His whole identity was in the fact that Jesus loved him. And these first five verses are interesting. These first five verses are John's big idea for the rest of his book. It's his thesis statement. What he says in these five verses, he's going to spend the rest of the book proving over and over and over again. So let's read verse one. It says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. All right, so John's communicating two things in this thesis. The first is that everything revolves around Jesus, and the second is that Jesus is our only sure hope. And the thing about these verses is interesting. John gives us two word pictures that describe Jesus. He calls him the word. And in Greek, that word for word is logos. 
And he uses that on purpose because in Greek philosophy, which was the predominant thought in that culture, um, the Greeks, you see, they believed in a pantheon of different gods. There wasn't one singular God. There was Zeus and there was all the Greek gods and they fought with each other and they hated each other and some liked humans and others didn't. And it was a very unstable universe that they created. But Greek philosophy did believe that there was one thing that held the universe together, that held all things in common and made all of life make sense. And they called that thing the logos. And it was this knowledge or this information that there was this truth that was out there, that if you could discover it, it would make sense of the world. It would bring everything together. And the purpose of philosophy is to use logic and reason and thinking to discover this universal, universal logos. So you see what John's doing when he calls Jesus the Logos? He's like, hey, morons, you're missing it. It's not about a thought or idea or a knowledge. You're you're missing it. The thing you're looking for is a person. His name is Jesus. He is God. All things were made through him and by him. He is before all things. He is from the beginning with God. He is the one you are searching for. He uses this phrase, word. And then he also calls Jesus the light. And I think this is more for the Jewish audience because in the Old Testament, when God revealed himself to his people, almost always a great blinding light was accompanied with God's presence. Right, you think about Moses, when God shows up to him, he shows up to him in a burning bush that won't burn out but is consumed with fire. You think about the Israelites following God through the wilderness. There was a pillar of light that shone in the morning and a pillar of fire at night, right? When Moses, when he went up to the mountain to meet with God, he he asked God, "Will, will you show me your glory? And God's presence falls on the mountain. And God says, you can't see all of me because it will kill you. But if you hide your face in the rock, you'll catch a glimpse as I pass by. And when he came down the mountain, he was freaking everyone out because he was glowing like the sun. And people didn't want to look at him in the face because he had seen the glory of God and it caused him to radiate light, right? When the temple is established and confirmed, it says that a light came down from heaven called God's Shekinah glory. And it was the symbol that God's presence is with his people. And what John is saying is is this light, this, this presence is Jesus. He is God. He is echoing what the writers of Hebrews wrote when he says that he is the radiance of the glory of God. That everything we can see and know and understand about God, we can see in Jesus Christ. And then look at verse 5, because here's where we're going to live this morning. It's this. It's that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John is saying that Jesus is the light that is shown into our world and the darkness has no power to defeat it, that he is the one sure hope we have in this world. And church, we need to talk about John for a little bit because here's the next thing I want you to see is that John was an eyewitness to darkness. John was an eyewitness to the darkness. And look at me really quick. One of the things I love about the Bible is that it won't lie to you. And John's not saying that, man, because of Jesus, there's never gonna be darkness anymore. There's never going to be pain or suffering or trials or difficulty. He says, no, 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 that Jesus has come to the darkness to shine his light and the darkness has not overcome it. 
But the Bible does teach that right now our world is dark and it is broken and it is under the authority of Satan who is an enemy of God, that God has given Satan limited authority over this earth. We read about this in Ephesians 6. It says this, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood and against the rulers and against authorities, against the cosmic powers, look, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul, when he's explaining to King Agrippa as he's standing trial for his life, he explains the the task Jesus has given him. And he said, Jesus showed up on the road of Damascus. And here's what he said to me. He said that I would open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, to the power of Satan, to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And church, I would argue that no one had seen this darkness face to face more so than John. Like church, think about it. John was in the garden when Jesus was betrayed. Imagine sitting with Jesus as his heart is so distressed that he is sweating drops of blood. And then all of a sudden one of your closest friends, Judas shows up, but he shows up with a ton of Roman guards and he kisses Jesus on the cheek and hands him over to the guards and they take him away from you and there's nothing you can do to stop it. And then that same night, he heard Peter, his other best friend, deny ever knowing Jesus. Don't associate me with that man. I've never seen him before. I don't know who it is. He saw the other disciples scatter. John was there at the cross. All the other disciples scattered and fled and left. John couldn't leave his best friend and his savior. And there's this moment in John 19 where Jesus is on the cross and he's suffering and he's dying and he's gasping for breath and he's bleeding and he looks at his mom and he goes, Mary. Then he points at John and he goes, this is your son now. Imagine the weight of that moment. Like, Jesus, I can't do this. You're not supposed to die. I've seen you raise the dead. I've seen you heal the sick. I've heard you preach the very words of God. You're the Messiah. This isn't how this is supposed to go. Do you think in that moment he didn't think to himself, the darkness has overcome the light? That it's over. As John is writing this book, he is exiled on the island of Patmos held there because of his faith in Jesus Christ. He has been boiled alive in oil, attempting to murder him. And he has watched all the other disciples get slaughtered. Peter, his other best friend, crucified upside down. Andrew, Philip, Simon, Bartholomew, all crucified to death. Matthew, Thomas, Matthias, speared to death. James and Paul, the great missionary to the Gentiles, beheaded in Rome. The other James and the other Judas, stoned to death for their faith in Jesus. Don't you think, as he's sitting on this island all alone in isolation, that this thought, the darkness has overcome the light? Don't you think he wrestled with that? Man, is this entire movement going to be crushed and snuffed out in one generation? So church, I want you to understand that when he writes in John 5 that a light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it, that is no insignificant thing. He's saying, I've seen the darkness face to face and it does not have the power to touch the light of the gospel. And church, I need you to hear this. The darkness has never left. Did you know that? 
that in the 2,000 years of church history since Jesus died and rose again, there have been numerous attempts by the darkness to snuff out the light of the gospel, and these attacks have worked themselves out in two primary ways. The first is all-out assault against Christians. If we can't change what they believe, let's just kill them. And this isn't an exhaustive list. This is just what came to my mind as I was writing this week, just being a student of church history. Uh, The first was Nero, right? This is the persecution that the disciples were killed under, that John lived under. He was emperor of Rome. Let me get this right, from 54 to 68 AD. And secular historians would say that he was a madman and extremely paranoid. And in the 60s, there was this great fire in Rome and the Roman citizens were mad and they were blaming Nero. So Nero needed a scapegoat. And so he blamed the fire on this new religion that refused to acknowledge the emperor as a god. So he hated them for that. So he blamed it on the Christians. And he said they were insurrectionists and that they were against the Roman Empire. And he declared open season on murdering Christians. And thousands of Christians were slaughtered, crucified, burned to death, fed to lions, brought into massive arenas where they were defenseless, women and children against professional gladiators to be slaughtered for sport in front of packed crowds of Roman citizens. All out assault. Let's move to the 1500s. How many of you guys have heard of Bloody Mary? Not the drink, the person, right? She was a queen who was Catholic and she hated Protestants she hated that they read the Bible. She hated that their hope was not in the, the, the church, but that it was in the word of God. And she went village to village, town to town, killing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Christians, going into churches, burning pastors, burning the, ch- the, the churches down, burning all of the Bibles, persecuting the church. Here's one that not many are familiar about. In the 1600s in Japan, uh, Christianity was growing at such a fast rate in Japanese society in the 1600s that the Japanese leaders were worried they were going to lose control over their country and lose power. So they acted very quickly and made Christianity illegal in Japan. And the way they would find out if you were a Christian or not is they went door to door, village to village, house to house, and they would have a picture of Jesus on the cross. And they would demand that you spit on it or trample on it as a physical way of rejecting Jesus. And thousands and thousands of Christians refused to spit on their Savior. And so they were brutally murdered. The Japanese figured out that if you crucify someone upside down, but cut lines into their temples, it releases the pressure and you die slower. And that's how they killed Christians. Or they would crucify you in the ocean so you would be hanging there and watch as the tide would slowly rise, seeing what was going to come to drown you as the waves would overtake you. Would not recant, would not curse their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 1920, Joseph Stalin, he believed that the vision of his perfect man would be someone who was free of the shackles of religion, that he would be an atheist, and he empowered militant atheist groups to ransack the church. And they destroyed churches, they destroyed religious artifacts, they destroyed Bibles. And again, it's hard to know for certain because of how secretive things were back then. But some scholars say as many as hundreds of thousands of Christians were murdered under Stalin's reign as leader of the Soviet Union. All out assault. The other attack is what I'm going to call intellectual darkness. This is the other primary attack on Christianity, and it's been through intellectual movements trying to deconstruct and attack who Jesus was and the truth of Christianity. A couple famous ones um, in the late 1600s through the early 1800s was the Enlightenment. 
And and what it says is, is instead of having God be at the center of all things, we're going to replace God with science and reason. And we're going to evolve past the fairy tales and superstition of religion. And we're only going to believe in the things we can observe and see and replicate. And we're putting all of our hope in our mind's ability to reason. The French historian Paul Hazard says, the express aim of the Enlightenment was to put Christianity on trial and to even annihilate the religious interpretation of life. It was a movement to expel Christianity. We're done following Jesus. Another historian, Peter Gay, said the Enlightenment was a war on Christianity. Right In the early 1900s, communism, it's not that God's at the center, but we're going to put the state or the collective at the center Karl Marx, one of the early thought leaders, some call the father of communism, he says that atheist, or that, uh, let me see it again, communism begins where atheism begins. It's the same thought. It's the outflowing of the same idea that, that our men, our people, our society will be free of religion and God, and we will put ourselves, the collective, what is best for the whole at the center. And that's what we will live for, a strong nation, a strong society. Right today, we've talked a lot about this, but the primary thought in our culture and is growing throughout the world is secular humanism. And it's not science and reason at the center anymore. It's not the state or the collective, but it's just the individual and our wants, our freedoms, our ideas, our thoughts, our truth, how we want to express ourselves. The predominant thought in our culture is I can be whoever I want to be. I can be whatever I want to be. And there is absolutely no outside authority, whether that be uh, parents, teachers, God, that can tell me who I am or what I am or what is right and what is wrong. And any semblance of outside authority that is right and true and is the standard of truth is outrightly rejected. And church, hear me, this movement, this intellectual movement is chewing people up and devouring them. One of the hard parts about serving in one community for 13 years like I have is I was the youth pastor 12 years ago, 10 years ago, and there were kids, man, that just loved the Lord and were on fire for him when they were freshmen, sophomores, juniors, and seniors in high school. And I have watched them embrace secular humanism and say, I am rejecting my faith, I am rejecting Jesus, I'm rejecting the Lord, and I am embracing this intellectual belief completely and fully to the fullest extent. It's heartbreaking. And every single time there's an embracing of secular humanism, it comes at the expense of rejecting biblical Christianity. But church, I want you to hear this. Despite seasons of outright brutality and intellectual attack, I I need you to know this. The light is still blinding. Did you know that? That John wrote, a light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Do you know that in 2020, one of the biggest research firms in the world, Pew Research, they they ran a a poll or they did a study and they found that over 2.3 billion people would profess themselves as followers of Jesus Christ today in our world. 2.3 billion. Now, again, they paint with broad lines. That includes Catholics, that includes all denominations. But here's what I love to hear about that poll. Somewhere between one third and one quarter of our world says that Jesus Christ was the son of God. He came to earth, he died on the cross and he rose again. A light shines in the darkness. It has not overcome it. Christianity is by far the greatest and strongest and biggest faith in the entire world. And do you know that Christianity, unlike any other major world faith, breaks the lines of race and ethnicity and region? Like, I love this. Today, there are Brazilians 
in Brazil worshiping Jesus Christ as Lord in their own language, in their own tongue, in their own ways. There are South Koreans in South Korea worshiping Jesus Christ as Lord in their own tongues, in their own traditions, in their own ways. There are people in Australia worshiping Jesus Christ as Lord. There are people in the Netherlands worshiping Jesus Christ as Lord. There are even people in Florida, church, worshiping Jesus Christ as Lord in their own language and in their own traditions. It absolutely blows out any cultural distinctions. One of the coolest things what I love is we've sent people in our church on missions trips. We've gone to Africa, we've gone to Nepal, we've gone to Serbia, we've gone to the Caribbean, all over the world. And when they, people come back from our church on these mission trips, you know what they say without fail? They're like, the best part of the mission trip was the people we got to meet. And it's like, man, I've got people that I can't hardly speak their language. We have nothing in common, but I feel a closer bond with them than people I do living down the street because we share the same Holy Spirit. We both love Jesus Christ. He is our Lord and we live to serve him and glorify him. And that's amazing. Church, a light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. Look at me, this light, this movement of God, it's bigger than our country. Did you know that? It cannot be thwarted by an election. It is greater than our generation. Listen, all of us are going to go and we're going to come and we're going to leave. And the name of Jesus Christ is going to continue to be worshiped way after we are gone. Right, one of the coolest things about pastoring at a place for 13 years is just yesterday, Mary got to go to a baby shower of a young couple in our church. And what's cool about this baby shower is the couple was actually dating when they were in our youth group. So we've known them for a dozen years. And what I love is they love the Lord. They're worshiping him. They're serving him. They're plugged into the church. They're faithful. And now we get to celebrate this new life that's entering the world that is gonna have parents that are going to love them and point them to Jesus. And Mary was at this shower celebrating that this baby that we're expecting, that we're excited to come. And another girl approaches Mary that she hasn't seen in five or six years, but was also from our youth group. And she was like, man, thank you so much for the impact you had for Christ in my life. And that youth group changed my life. And I love the Lord and I'm married and I have kids now and we're serving the Lord and we're walking with him and we're being faithful. You get to see faithfulness pass through the generations. This thing will not be stopped. We do not need to be a people of fear. Look at verse four. It says, in him was life and the life was the light of men. And so what I wanna do is I wanna explore this idea that Jesus is our life. So do me a favor, if you have your Bible, flip over two books to Romans five. Romans five, verse one. I want you to turn here because I think this idea that Jesus being our life can be kind of vague. And Paul does this brilliantly, I think better than anywhere else in scripture. He kind of lays out what it means that Jesus is our life. Romans five, verse one, here's what it says. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also taken access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And throw up the next slide. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, here's what it means that Jesus is our life, is that because of Jesus, we've been made righteous. He has healed our sin problem. That when God looks at us, he sees us as if we had never sinned. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ in us. Jesus paid the bill and he brought us peace. 
All right, can we have a moment of honesty at church? How many of you have that relationship in your life where there's always conflict? No matter how hard you try to make things better, they just get worse. Anyone been there? Okay, that was our position before God until Jesus Christ came. There was nothing we could do to fix the distance and the brokenness between us and God. And Jesus came and he made peace. And then it says, now that we stand in this grace that we've received through faith. You know what grace is? Grace is getting what we don't deserve. That every single day we live in a grace. That when we wake up and God's spirit resides in our heart, that's grace. When we can breathe air in our lungs, that we can worship and glorify Jesus Christ, that's grace. The fact that we can gather together and lift high the name of Jesus and that we can do it in a way that's creative and loud and free, that is grace. The fact that we can open God's word and read from it, that is grace. The fact that we can have relationships with one another and love one another and encourage one another, that's grace. It's all grace. Then he says we have joy. He says we have joy in the hope of the glory of God that we will see that glory. And just like Moses, that light will shine on us. But then he also says, we have hope in trials. And again, church, I love this. The Bible's not gonna lie to you. He's not saying it's always going to be easy and there won't be pain and hardship and suffering. And listen, as I look around this room, some of us in here have had dark 2023s, haven't we? And there's been loss and there's been grief and there's been mourning and there's been brokenness and there's been pain. But guess what Paul says? We know that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And then I love verse five. He says, and hope will not put us to shame, right? Because biblical hope is certain. He is like, this is not how it's going to end in pain and brokenness, but Jesus is going to return. He's going to make all things right. And we can be sure of it. We've been given a certain hope. Paul is writing to Christians who are being scattered and persecuted and being like, God, what are you doing? And he's saying, you will not be put to shame. He is echoing John's words when he's like, I am exiled on an island. But the darkness has not overcome the light. So here's what I want to do as we close. I want to close with what I'm calling an Advent thought. And I'm just going to be really honest with you. I want this thought to be the thing that kind of haunts you this week that you've got to wrestle with. On Wednesday, when you're not thinking about anything, I want this thought to pop in your head. Here's what it is. The Advent thought that I'm closing with is that our hope is only alive if Jesus is alive. Everything Paul writes in Romans 5, everything that John writes in John 1 all of it is hinging on the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Either he's alive or he's not, right? As C.S. Lewis so articulately puts it, he's either a lunatic or he's a liar or he's Lord. Jesus claimed boldly to be the son of God. Jesus claimed that he was the light of the world and his followers claimed that he rose from the dead. All of it hinges is on Jesus alive or not. You have to make a decision. There's no middle ground with Jesus. He forces a choice. So what I want to do is I want to close our time with thinking about John again, Jesus' best friend. What gave him the certainty that as an old man on an island exiled in prison, he could write that the light has shone in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. You know what it was? He saw the empty tomb and he saw his risen Savior. So what I want to do to close our time is I want to look at John's account of the resurrection. It's on the screen. Follow along as I read. It says this. It says, now on the first day of the week, 
Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. So John's talking about himself there. That's how he referred to himself. And she said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. That's one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. See what John's doing? He's like, let the record state for eternity that I am faster than Peter. (laughs) Both of us were running together. We heard at the same time. We started at the same time. I got there first by a significant margin. All right? What a brother thing to do. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him. Right there it is again. And went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went in and saw and he believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Then in verse 19, it says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. And he said to them, peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Do you know why John could say a light has shined in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it? Because he saw his risen Lord. Do you know how James and Peter and Paul and all of these men could go to their death, not for political power, not for money, not for prestige. They did it because they wouldn't renounce what they had seen. Jesus is alive and he's Lord and he rose from the dead. And listen, our faith rests on the historical reality that Jesus is alive and he's ruling and reigning as Lord. Amen? And that hope will not put us to shame because it is certain. And so church, if that's true, you've got to make a decision. But if that is true, then Christmas this year can't just be about remembering what happened in a manger in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. It has to move our hearts to joy and worship in the reality that we have a certain hope that we are going to see Jesus face to face, that he is coming again and we will be united with him and those in Christ for all of eternity. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I just thank you. Um, Thank you for your word. And God, specifically, um, I thank you for the life and testimony of John, your best friend. What an amazing thing to be known as the best friend of Jesus. And God, I'm thankful for his courage to stay and be there at the cross that he could record these things for us. I'm thankful for his commitment to follow you even when it felt like the darkness was overcoming the light. And I'm thankful for his assured, bold, confident hope that you are alive and that you are Lord and that we can learn from him and that we can share in that same hope. God, we can know for certain today that we will rejoice with John in heaven someday and we will hear him recount of your goodness and faithfulness. You are king, you are Lord, you are reigning forever. Let that be the thing that dominates our lives this holiday season. We love you, let us worship you now. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.